pressing on toward the end of uh, chapter 1. We're not going to get there today. We've got three verses to deal with. Three hard verses in a lot of ways. Hear the word of God. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me to proclaim your testimony with simplicity this morning, that you would help me to know Christ and him crucified, that your people might know him more completely. I ask that you would demonstrate your power through the Spirit so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the time when the colonies were still colonies, in the days of Jonathan Edwards, and other men like George Whitfield, who came over from England and did uh, numerous uh, preaching tours throughout New England and New York. There was a spiritual awakening that took place, which is called the Great Awakening. And part of what was significant about that was the way in which the message was preached. The Enlightenment had in many ways taken a foothold in those new colonies. And the old faith had begun to be transformed by this idea of the innate goodness of people. And rather than appeal to that, the main preachers and leaders of the Great Awakening did something very different. If you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards in an English literature class, it probably means that you made, they made you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's by far probably his most famous work. But this week I went back and looked at one of his discourses known as Man, Naturally, God's Enemies. He uses Romans 5, a passage we looked at before, and we've mentioned it as we've gone through Colossians, that idea that for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And he goes at length into the reality of what it means that we were enemies of God. He was not the only one who preached this way. They saw the good news as necessary for people to comprehend, sorry, the bad news, as necessary to comprehend the good news. That until people saw their true plight, they would never run to the one solution to their plight. 
And we live in a day and age in which the Enlightenment has pressed on even farther. And the average American believes in the innate goodness, the basic goodness of people. And so when they see video of shootings at Walmart, they're surprised. We shouldn't be surprised in the least. But we should recognize that that is an opportunity to reveal man in his true condition and therefore offer, as Paul does here, Christ crucified for reconciliation. So the big idea this morning is that Christ reconciles God's enemies so they will trust in him. He begins on a very negative sort of note, to us anyway, to our our high view of ourselves. People as sinners are naturally God's enemies. He has just sort of ended this, this hymn that he had been writing about. He's shifted, it's, it's moved away from the hymn, and it ended on that note of reconciliation. And the initial question that would come to men's minds would be, why is it that we needed to be reconciled? And Paul immediately goes into the reality of their condition before they were reconciled to God through Christ Jesus why it's necessary for Jesus to make peace. He's going to say, why did he have to die? Their condition before their faith in Jesus Christ is humbling because it is not basically good. If you have an idea that human beings are basically good, then the whole notion of that is very popular today of this uh moralistic, therapeutic deism makes perfect sense. Okay? Because we really don't need to be saved from anything. We just need God to kind of smooth over the rough spots in our lives. Okay, and that's the way that most Americans think, most Westerners think, if they think at all about God. Is that I don't really need a whole lot of help. I just have to kind of do good and... When I have a hard spot, you know, when my marriage is maybe struggling or someone's ill in my family, we need God to kind of make us feel better and help us through that trial. That's essentially the worldview of most people in the West. That's not the worldview of Paul. It should not be our worldview. He starts off with the idea that you were alienated, estranged from God. He recognized that there was enmity or hatred between God and man. That this um, hatred was natural for their condition. And I say that, that word natural because of the text that we read there, that Marty read for us in Ephesians chapter 2, that they were, we were naturally, or by nature, objects or vessels of wrath. It's tied in with this idea that we're naturally God's enemies. This is who we were. It's like a cobra and a mongoose. They don't ever coexist. One will try to kill the other. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is with the Israelis and Hamas. There seems to be no way to really make peace. It's just sort of a, we're not going to kill each other today. But we're waiting for the right time. Okay? There's sort of this natural animosity and hatred that flares out in destruction at times. 
And so that's, that's what Paul is saying. He clarifies it. Goes a little further. He says, hostile in mind. That their thoughts and their attitudes were hostile toward God. They had no thoughts of love for Him. They had no thoughts of His glory and peace with Him and enjoying fellowship with Him. It was completely different than that. Hostile. Now, if you talk to the average person, they will have a hard time believing that, won't they? I've met people, I've never, I, I've never been God's enemy. I, I have never hated God. I've never thought this way. There are very few people who recognize it for what it is. There are very few people who, like Christopher Hitchings, will express the idea that they hate God. Now, he talks about how he doesn't think God exists. So for him, it's he hates the notion of God. And so there's very few people who will put words to that. But that doesn't mean that this is not the disposition of their hearts. Paul is saying that it was the disposition of their hearts. In Ephesians chapter 4, he kind of builds on this idea in a different context They are darkened. He's talking about the Gentiles who are still apart from Christ, which means by implication this is who we were before Christ. They are darkened in their understanding, which fits in perfectly with Romans 1. Paul is consistent with himself. Darkened in their understanding, and then the same word we have earlier in this text, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's bad news. Because that means not only are we hostile in our thoughts and attitudes towards God, but because of our sin, our understanding is darkened. It does not perceive things as they really are. And so the notion that people just need the right philosophy or just need to be more educated will not deal with their problem. It may help them get a better job, but it won't deal with the fundamental problem. Philosophy will not help you understand the fundamental problem of humanity. And we'll see how Paul will bring that up later on. Don't be taken captive by vain philosophy, he says, because that is just the product of the darkened understanding, the darkened mind which is ignorant because of the hardness of its heart. We can't think our way out of our problem as sinners. The hostility in mind results in doing evil deeds. This is how the hostile mind was expressed, disobedience. And so while people will not say, I hate God, what they will do is utterly disregard his commands. And so their hatred is revealed by their rebellion Well, you know, those rules were for past generations. We've evolved beyond that. We're more enlightened now. And so those old rules of how to live life are just passe. It's rebellion. It is rooted in their alienation from God. It is not rooted in true wisdom. It is a false wisdom. And it is the product 
of rebellion. It is the evidence of the heart that is hostile toward God. And so even if they don't say they hate God with their words, they're speaking it with their actions. Paul, as as we saw in Ephesians 2, clarifies this again. He says that we followed the will of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We followed the will of Satan, not God. Even when we did good to earn favor. The context that we uh, did in our um, confession of sin this morning (coughs) from Isaiah, that idea of... um, even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay. They were going through the motions. They were, you know, outwardly a religious people, but their hearts were really against God. And that is why their righteous acts, the things that were, that looked good on the outside really were not good because they came from enmity with God Himself. Jonathan Edwards, in uh, Man, or naturally God's enemies, writes, A natural man has a heart like the heart of a devil. Only corruption is more under restraint in men than in devils. So he recognizes that the Spirit of God, using government and other means, restrains the evil, in men's hearts to an extent, so that we are not like the devils, though we could be. We're not as bad as we could be in our actions, is what, or what non-Christians are. And so this, this condition of sin is manifest, has manifested itself differently based on you know, persons and cultures. Okay, the way in which the sin was uh, revealed in Roman culture was very different than how it reveals itself in, say, Chinese culture. Right? Different kinds of sin taking place. I, I think of my wife and I. Okay, different people. You know, um, the, the way in which that <clears throat> enmity with God manifested itself in my life was far different than how it manifested itself in Amy's life. You would look at Amy and you would go, she's an angel. You know, Steve, he's not quite the devil, but he's pretty bad. No. (laughs) My sins were far more obvious than my wife's sins were before Christ found us. Okay, so it differs by people. There are things that even now as a Christian, she struggles with that I don't struggle with, and there are things that I struggle with that she's like, huh, you struggle with that? What are you, huh? You know, okay? It differs by people, by culture. But it's there. But we have a hard time seeing it. That's part of the problem. It's very hard for me to see my sin when I'm looking at Amy's sin. It's hard for me to see my sin when I'm seeing the sin of people on the TV news. As long as we're comparing ourselves to other people, there's always going to be someone who's worse than us. That's not the point. 
Actually, if, if you um, met me when I was a, a, a teenager, aside from going, my, you're really thin, um, I would have seemed like an ordinary teenager. You know, I didn't end up on the evening news because I'd done something wrong. You know, I could compare myself to, a, to my cousin. I never stole a car. I never went joyriding. <laughs> okay? It'd be easy to do that. It'd be easy to say, you know, Steve looked like an ordinary, basic, okay kind of person. And it's missing the point because it's really taking me out. It's evaluating me outside of the context of God's law and God's standard by which I fell immensely short. That is the standard by which we should evaluate people. Not the relative standard of, well, let's compare Paul to George. Sorry, Paul. You lose. Okay? No, we compare them both to Christ. And George, you lose there. You both lose. Okay? But that's good news. Because now we, we come to the realization that we can't do it. We can't make ourselves good enough to be acceptable to God. And so we were God's enemies in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our choices. We were in desperate trouble, which, which Paul then brings us to the second part of this, which is, and I'm adding the word only this time, only Christ's death is sufficient to save sinners. I forgot that on your note. Just scribble that in there. Only. Because we were at enmity with God, because we were hostile in our minds towards Him, reconciliation is not something we desired. Forget pursued. What happens when you're really mad at somebody? Do you pursue them to reconcile with them? If you pursue them, it's to hurt them. And so we kind of kept either a safe distance from God or we kept running from God. We did not seek reconciliation with God in any way, shape, or form. What I don't like about how the ESV handles this is that it misses a word. If you look in Ephesians 2, you'll t- Paul talks about how um, wrong, how misguided they were, how corrupt they were, and then it has what we call the divine but. But God. There's a but here. In the Greek, there's a but here. A divine but. Something, the adversative is there. We were enemies, but God did something significant. He reconciled us to himself in Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It says he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Paul returns to the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus is human. He's just like us. Paul does not use the ordinary word you would expect to see for body, soma. Why? Because he just used it to talk about the body of Christ. He does not want there to be a confusion of what body he's talking about. Okay, so he uses the, one of the other words for body, sarks to differentiate with the church, but also to identify with our frailty and our need. This was a Christ who, though the fullness of God dwelt in him, was also 
fully frail and weak as we. The incarnation itself was not sufficient for our salvation. And that's why Paul says that he did this by his death. Jesus became human precisely so he could die to reconcile us while he's in that state of humiliation. And what is significant about that is that angels can't die for us. Angels can't reconcile us to God. Later in this letter, he's going to talk about angels, how some people have this worship of angels. They're, they're trying to deceive the church and lead it from the pure faith in Christ to somehow combining it with worship of angels. And Paul is saying right here, there's no way you should do that because they can't save you. It is only Christ who has taken on flesh and bone and died, thereby reconciling us to God. The angels can't do that. He paid the wages of sin for us. Then the question again comes up, why? Why would he pay the wages of sin for us? What was his purpose in doing this? And Paul illuminates this with three things in this one phrase, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, quickly, is he talking about justification? Or are you talking about sanctification? Due to the context of, of what he's talking about, the reconciliation, I believe he's talking about justification in this particular text. <clears throat> And so as a result, what he's talking about is an alien holiness. The gift of Christ's holiness to us as opposed to our, we ourselves becoming holy in and, our, in and of ourselves. Now Paul is going to get there at the end of this chapter. I think he's talking about sanctification when he's talking about the ministry of the word to present people mature, holy, and blameless. I think that's the sanctification aspect. But here he's talking about the justification aspect, that initial step in the, in the, the Christian life, the beginning of the Christian life. And so he pardons us. And he gives us his righteousness so that we will be holy in Christ. That's why I kind of, you know, borrowed uh, Luther's alien righteousness and kind of shifted it with alien holiness right there. Not only are we considered as holy, though we know we're sinners, but also he says that we are blameless. In other words, we're without blemish. We're without spot or wrinkle. And, um, you know, like my little wrinkle right here, I'm not very good at ironing my clothes, okay? I will often leave a wrinkle in there, especially in the sleeves. In Christ, we have none of those. We have none of those moral wrinkles, none of those moral blemishes, none of those moral spots. He has removed them so that God no longer sees them when he sees us. Not only that, but we are above reproach. Which means that there are no more accusations. 
that are levied against us. When you have sinned as much as I have sinned, that is hard to believe at times. How can there be no accusations against me? It is only because Christ has dealt with them. That is it, pure and simple. He has removed them such that (coughs) Satan can no longer make the accusations about my sin. Doesn't stop Satan from trying. But there are none that he can make. Now, all of this is legal language. The words here, especially that of being um, the the presenting and the word there of being um, above reproach, all ha- are all legal language and has the idea here of being brought before a judge. And so when at the end we're brought before the judge, who is God himself, he will not say, well, I still remember a few of those things you did, Steve. Holy, blameless, without reproach. Not because I have done something to take it away, but because Christ has taken it all away. That only seems beautiful and important when you recognize that you were his enemy. Otherwise, it's just, oh, that's nice. Christ has removed our offenses. Because he is fully God and fully man, he is sufficient, and he alone is sufficient, to remove all guilt and shame. Paul then moves to the third part of this. Continue to trust the Christ of the gospel. Paul now gets very controversial. He throws in a big fat if. And so we have the debate that takes place within Christianity. Or is it, you know, you can, can you lose your salvation? Is that what Paul is saying here? Are we to believe in a once saved, always saved, sort of refer, reformed Arminian position? Are we to hold to the reformed position of the perseverance of the saints? What are we to do? How does this fit in? That's important for us to understand. We have to reckon that there is such a thing as counterfeit faith and counterfeit grace. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, towards the end of the book, has this section on the difference between true grace and counterfeit grace. That's amazingly important for us to grasp and understand. Because there is such a thing as counterfeit grace. It's like a counterfeit 20. It looks like a 20 to you and me, but you get an expert and they know it's not worth $20. It's worth nothing. It needs to be burned. And so there are people who look like Christians to you and to me, but to God, He looks and they're not Christians. They're counterfeits. They're playing. One of the things that Edwards notes is counterfeit grace is careless whether it perseveres to the end or not. Basically, it says, how I live doesn't matter. It's a misunderstanding of justification. Okay? But true grace naturally 
causes earnest desires for perseverance and leads to hungerings and thirstings for it. And so the person who has experienced true grace, and while they recognize that Christ alone is sufficient, they also say, I want to be holy. I recognize the great treasure I have in Christ, and I don't want to lose this, even though people may be trying to take it away from me. I experience guilt when I sin, and I hate that, and I hunger after God because I don't have enough of God. That's the sign of true grace. The counterfeit grace says, well, you know, who cares? doesn't quite say it that blatantly but it's not concerned about its spiritual condition. It's not really concerned to press on farther in, farther on to know God more fully. It says, I've got enough of God. It's okay. But true grace says, I have all of God, but I want to experience Him more. That's a huge difference. He says, if, if, You continue in the faith. That's the nature of saving faith. It persists. It's not a momentary thing. It's not a mere decision, you know, and then all of your life is just changed magically by that, even if you don't continue to believe. The nature of saving faith is that it continues to believe. It continues to lay hold of the gospel and lay hold of Christ as he's presented in the gospel. And so he's saying to the Colossians, you have really partaken of this reconciliation that that God did if you persist in it. Your persisting doesn't earn it for you. It's just a sign that you have actually been reconciled. Okay, it's a significant difference in, in how we think about this. Okay, your persistence is not what get what gets you in, but it's a sign that Christ has regenerated you. It's that idea of being born again of imperishable seed. You will fall down and you will get up again. You will keep moving forward because you know you're going to a significant place. You're not just kind of like, well, you know, I'll pull off on the side of the road for a while. Then maybe I'll turn around. I don't know. Persists, perseveres. It is remaining in the faith, continuing to hold to the doctrines of the faith, particularly about Christ as he's presented to us in the gospel. Paul is consistent about this. He notes in Romans 11, as I noted in Sunday school, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you, same word, continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. He's speaking about the true vine, which is Christ. And the unbelieving Jews had been removed from that vine, and these believing Gentiles had been grafted in. But Paul is again saying, you know, don't think that because you walked an aisle in our vernacular that it's all said and done. True faith persists, continues. lest you be removed from the visible church because you do not belong to the invisible church. 
Now I have another bone to pick with the ESV here this morning. First, they didn't contain, they didn't put in the divine but, but also they say stable, implying that I am to be stable. Okay? But this is a, this word is a perfect tense participle. Okay? That's one of those, uh, perfect tense is past action, present consequences. Okay, so something happened in the past that has abiding significance for the present, and not only is it a, a um, perfect participle, but is also passive, meaning I don't do it. It has been done to me. And so something has been done to me in the past that has present relevance and abiding effect. And so it is probably better translated, having been established. Instead of holding myself steady, he's pointing to the fact that we have been established if we're in Christ. Our perseverance is the result of having been established or being found in Christ. It is not our doing. It is God's doing. Our steadfastness, our firmness, is a function of the Spirit at work in us. And one of the ways that He works in us is through the warnings of Scripture. Hebrews has those warnings. It has those ifs. Okay? Because they were tempted because of persecution to go back to Judaism. These were Hebrew Christians that, are, that he's writing to. And so <clears throat> they're tempted to just give it up due to the persecution by the, by the Jews and just go back to Judaism. And he warns them that if you do that, there's no return. And he, and he has these threatenings, but, he's, but he also has this expectation that... I expect better things for you. That the grace of God, in a sense, will not be um, wasted on you. We see in Galatians that uh, the same sort of thing is happening, that uh, they're tempted to add circumcision to Christ for salvation. That, you know, they're not fully in until they're also circumcised. And Paul is saying, if you get circumcised for that reason, you lose Christ. Here in the letter to the Colossians is very similar. Okay, because there are a number of things of they're trying to draw their allegiance and attention away from Christ. And he's saying you must continue in Him. You must not shift from the hope of the gospel. They were in danger of shifting their hope off of Christ to something else. And that's because people are foolish to hope in anyone or anything but the Son who died for sinners. That worldly philosophy won't save you. Those angels can't save you. Those rituals can't save you. Those departed saints can't save you. Because none of these died to reconcile you to God. That's Paul's basic argument. And so their hope was only to be found in the gospel proclaimed everywhere. 
Know what Paul's saying? This is not secret knowledge. Okay, the, the, the whole gnosis thing. That you know, this is uh, what we see in Colossians is probably an early form of Gnosticism, which says that you're saved essentially by by secret knowledge. And there's all that dualism that takes place. You know, material stuff is evil, spiritual stuff is good. God, the Old Testament, evil. God, the New Testament, good. All that kind of stuff. Okay. What Paul is saying is that this is not secret knowledge, but this is the same gospel that is being proclaimed everywhere to every creature under heaven, which I have been made a minister of. So this is not a secret gospel. It's to be broadly proclaimed. It is to be made known to every person that we can possibly make it known to. Another implication of that is that there is only one gospel. As Paul would uh, sort of mention in Galatians, there's not one gospel for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. It's the same gospel. There is not one gospel for men and another gospel for women. It's the same gospel. There's not one gospel for free people and another gospel for slaves. One gospel. There's not one for rich people and one for poor people. There's not one for white people and one for every other color of people. One gospel. It's the same. We all enter in by the one door that is Christ. There's not another door that certain people can get in through. One. And it's humbling. Or it ought to be. So the message of Edwards, Whitfield, and others during the Great Awakening was not an easy-to-believe gospel. It was a humbling gospel. They humbled sinners by being honest about their true condition before God apart from Jesus Christ. It is a condition that is blinded, or rather has blinded us to our condition. My mother is uh, starting to experience signs of memory loss and dementia. We're not sure if she's in denial or she doesn't realize it. That's a condition that blinds you to your condition, just like sin. Paul and, actually, Edwards, Whitfield, just like Paul, wanted the people who heard them to trust only and continually in Christ because he only is sufficient to save such sinners as we were. And so our only hope is found in Christ because only Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwelt and continues to dwell, died to reconcile us with God. Now, is that the gospel you hold to? That Jesus came for his enemies? It is the only gospel that can save you. Let's pray. 
Father, none of us likes to think about or admit that we were once your enemies or the possibility that we might still be because we've held to a different gospel. Father, be at work by your Spirit. That we can own up to what your word says about who we are or were. That our hope is fully on Christ, not partially on Christ. Help us to see where we're, we're looking to something else, whether it's our good works, our goodness, anything else in addition to Jesus that we would forsake it and lay claim only to him, knowing that those who do are presented holy, blameless, and without reproach before the throne of the judge and king. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.